America, as we all know, can love, monetize, and celebrate Black culture and hate Black people at the same time. And those two things don't actually have to be in conflict. In fact, they can almost thrive on themselves because they can create a hostile climate for even the culture makers who should be benefiting from what they've created and oftentimes don't. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum the colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the tightrope where we try to keep our balance on tough issues. My name is Trisha Rose, and I am here with my esteemed colleague, good friend and co-host, Dr. Cornell West. And we're really delighted to have a great show for you today. But before we launch in, I just want to check in with my dear brother here and see what the temperature is like over there in his neck of the woods. How are you feeling today? What's on your mind? What, uh, what's on your heart? What, what's, what's cooking? I'm always better in conversation with you, my dear sister, Trisha. Thank you, my dear. I can't tell you, this show, I think, might have saved my life in 2020, you know? <laughs> yeah, this, this, this was a rough year. <laughs> All the way through the pandemic, here come the tightrope, and you feel more empowered on the tightrope than just trying to make it through everyday life ground. in that way. It makes a difference. It, it really does. It, it absolutely and I want to thank you. I want to thank you. Well, thank you entirely. It's totally mutual. I, I always think, what, what's Cornell going to say about this? And well, I'll wait till the tightrope, you know, I'll wait till the tightrope. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thank God there's a tightrope coming so I can have this conversation. That's what I think. And what sisters, Trisha, how's she going to deal with this? Yep. <laughs> yeah. You just take it and take off. I said, oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> well, I sure hope so. I try. I try. But um, so we're we're, you know, in a new moment now um, where we have to shift gears, assuming just, you know, briefly, we're assuming Trump at least physically leaves the White House. Now, what legacies he ends up having in government is, is unclear. But assuming he actually leaves, we're in a new moment where we have to be uh, watchdogs around social justice and and, uh, you know, equity and, and fairness and, and humanity in a very different political context. We go from, you know, a kind of bitter oppositional fighting that we're trying to dodge and manipulate and, 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 and battle to something where people are actually what we call, you know, potentially smiling in your face, but doing very much the same thing, potentially. I mean, this Absolutely. feels like an abrupt transition, doesn't it? I mean, how are you thinking about this, the, the, the consequences of this shift? No, I wholly agree how you insightfully put it. I think we, we can celebrate that we've pushed the neo-fascist threat back. And that's, that's, that's yeah. not an easy thing. That was very, yeah. very important in terms of lives of everyday people, no matter what color, but disproportionately chocolate. But right. now we have to deal with our deep crisis of leadership in a post-Trump moment. And leadership is always about vision and imagination on the one hand. It's about quality of organization. And then it's about execution. 
bringing power and pressure to bear. All three of those levels, we have to be very, very careful in ensuring that we make sure that we don't get a decrepit leadership or a right. conformist leadership or a, uh, 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 what would be the right word? A leadership too accommodated to the status quo. Right. Now, we're not just talking about standing outside throwing rocks, but we're talking yep. about have a real vision and using their imagination to express it and articulate it, then having some social base and organization that can somehow follow through to the best of its ability and execute in a very wise way, jazz-like way, flexible mm. way, prudential, mm -hmm. not opportunistic, mm -hmm. but prudential way. And that's gonna be a question of seriously putting some, uh, viewing ourselves connected and profoundly over against right. the Biden-Harris administration, connected because they were part of our anti-fascist coalition. We right. broke our necks right. to push him over the line, so he's already got certain kind of obligation. But then our yeah. vision well, goes far beyond their neoliberal vision. You see. Yeah, well, it's not won't be the first time when people have an obligation to Black folk that they don't live up to. So, that you know, so that we may identify it as an obligation, but the question is, That's will it true. be lived up to? You know, rhetoric is one thing. So, you know, That's and then, you know, there's exactly just people's right. sheer energy, you know, and I'm, I'm so delighted. Uh, our guest, I'm sure we'll talk about this when when we get him on. But, you know, this that you work so hard just to stop, you know, the insanity that you don't have barely any energy to go on and build the thing that you now are hoping to build. So I want everybody to get a rest because everybody needs a break for sure. But at the same time, we got, as you would say, we got to keep pushing. We um, got to keep pushing. But that's also a sign of mature leadership. You do have to pace yourself so you're not just staying woke every moment and suffer from insomnia. Yeah. <laughs> but you're fortified and be able to be a marathon runner all the way through. But you also not just find joy in struggle, but you gain more energy from the service that you render and from the people who you service you're servicing, who you're working mm. with, who you're in solid solidarity alongside. You see? Mm. So it's like yeah. a James Brown concert. James Brown got more energy, the third section of the concert, than he did then when he, he did. first came out there. Exactly. Because pulling from the spirit of the people, you see. Mm. Mm. Good point. Very well put. And so therefore we basically need to be on stage with James Brown in order to keep this. <laughs> That's what I'm taking away, which I think is a great outcome if but, we can pull but, it off. But I'll put it this way. The brother who we have on the show today is is exactly that. That's the transition from the yes, people. it is. He, he's been a long distance runner and he's still a young brother. Yes, exactly. Brother, you know, so absolutely tightrope peoples we have the amazing executive director of uh, the color of change rashad robinson what we consider a kind of new generation civil rights leader who has been <laughs> deeply visionary and inspirational in transforming the politics of the internet and organizing black people in ways that we've not yet previously been organized he's also a friend and someone who I admire enormously, Rashad Robinson. Thank you for joining us and welcome to The Tightrope. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be on with you both. Yes, uh, we indeed. salute you though, brother. 2011, that's, that's, that's almost 10 years now, man. 
I know it is almost 10 years now. And I, 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 um, while I feel it at the same time, I also wonder sometimes want to know where the time all went and how much has, how much has happened and how much still hasn't happened, um, in that time. And so, no, mm -hmm. but yeah, almost 10 years now. Um, and, uh, and, and still kicking and still actually focused and engaged in a lot of these in, a, in so many ways. Right. Absolutely. Right. Let's start with that. What you just said, something that's interesting. You know, you said so much has changed and so much you sort of would have hoped would have changed didn't. Maybe just give us one of each. What, what was a big highlight of an impact that you want people to know about with Color of Change? And what were things that you thought, you know, you aren't going to be pushing this up this hill for so long, but that you're still sweating, you know, with the boulder? Yeah. So when I first got to Color of Change back in 2011, I had a lot of people say, well, why are you going to do racial justice work? I left doing work around LGBT equality, a lot of the media accountability work. And a lot of folks were like, you know, we've made progress. We got Obama in the White House. And I was watching the rise of the Tea Party. I was watching all the ways in which I felt like we were not getting the type of bold uh, push on things that we needed as a community. And I saw a color of change willing to take on the fights, willing to sort of say the things that need to be said, willing to hold corporations accountable in a way that the many in the civil rights community were more interested right. in getting a check than holding those institutions accountable. But there was this uh, show, this reality TV show that I tried to launch a campaign around where the host was going around the country spreading a racist lie about the president. And I started to launch the campaign and we got all sorts of emails from progressive partners telling me that you guys are wasting your time. Doesn't Color of Change have things better to do? You guys should ignore this guy. He's just a clown. He's just a joke. We were going after the advertisers because we felt like NBC was giving this guy a platform. Corporate advertisers in between commercials were allowing him to portray himself as a smart, capable businessman while he was spreading a racist conspiracy theory. And lo and behold, Donald Trump years later becomes our president. And so, you know, one thing that I think that oftentimes the left still has a challenge with is recognizing the role and the power of culture to both that both precedes policy change and political change, but also gives us the sort of context for sort of how we're experiencing. And so whether it's what we're seeing on social media with all the information bubbles, whether it's sort of like the information and content that we're seeing on television and other places, these can very much be a sign and a signal about what's to come. And that's one of the things that I think while um, we are seeing a lot of change in Hollywood, we're not seeing enough. And while I wish that the movement was much more sort of adept at understanding those cultural signs, I don't think that we actually are, which mm -hmm. in some ways is why I think a lot of people thought that we were gonna have a big blowout this election cycle when I was like, that is absolutely not gonna happen. And I think that people were sort of under the impression that we were living inside of a different country than we actually are. Mm. Uh, so you always in touch with, with reality. Mm -hmm. You know, Sister Tricia, when, when, when few of us were really trying to put some strong pressure on our dear brother Barack Obama, the close ties of Wall Street and Pentagon militarism, that this brother was one of the very few who was willing to even be in the same room with us. You remember the poverty tools, Philadelphia, we're going all the way back with Brother Tavis and the others. And, and you did it in your own way with your own integrity. And, mm -hmm. and that, that, that meant much to me and many others in that regard, because you're able to move on the inside 
you're able to move on the outside and you got that dialectical interplay. I don't know whether that's a Long Island uh, <laughs> sensibility you get from Rakim or Chuck D or whatever it is, though, brother. But, <laughs> but you're moving back and forth like that. Now, you, you see yourself having to do the same thing now with, uh, with Biden-Harris, huh? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I'm actually more excited about what I have to do here. You know, there were there was this time in meeting in the White House where, like, I went there. It was about it was Black History Month, 2016, because I didn't really start getting invited to the White House until they were about to leave. Because the few years before, we had sort of made ourselves persona non grata. Uh, no, hanging out, hanging out. Bank, with yeah, probably hanging out with you. But a bunch of, but a bunch of, that'll get you into trouble, Rashad. I was in all sorts of, I was in all sorts of trouble, but, um, but, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, so we were, so, but, but it was towards the end of that time, you know, and we had, and the organization was growing and our reach was growing. And I remember going to this meeting with a number of other civil rights leaders and people went around and spent their time, the sort of time they were allotted, praising the president, telling him how great he was, how proud they were of him and his family and all of this. And this is like towards the end of his time when we have like the final time to get executive orders, the final time to get things sort of through. And, you know, this was when we knew we had a Supreme Court opening, but they hadn't yet nominated Garland which I thought, wow, what would it have been like to actually put up a black woman that we could have fought for and fought around. And at the very least, who knows if she would have got a hearing, but it could have been a very mobilizing force. Absolutely. And, you know, and a black woman with a politics um, yeah, that yeah. recognizes the role of corporate power, recognizes right. a whole set of things, because I think that that's sometimes the thing that gets dropped off when we talk about identity politics is mm-hmm. what you identify with in terms of issues and sort of a, a future. So, you know, yeah. I sat in that meeting and I, you know, was just like watching people. And I spent my time going in on specific issues, like trying to use my time to push and challenge. But, you know, President Obama said something really interesting in that meeting. He said, at some point, like it was like the fifth or sixth person that was complimenting me, he said, hey, I know, I know. What am I like? Ninety-five percent with the black community, and that's without Michelle. And it was like a joke, but it was also like a, a real, like the way he basically was like, "Hey, y'all, like your people love me more than they love you." And it was a sign of how inept I think the movement had been at really holding them accountable, at creating the context, because folks spent eight years, even after the first four, still trying to protect him and make yeah. and explain yeah. him and make everything to the frame. And we don't have to do that anymore. And that yeah. I think yeah. is the beauty. The trick here is, is to recognize that Joe Biden also isn't a celebrity the way Obama is. And he's not going to have the type of force and right. uh, support from the, from the grassroots. And we're going to have to do a lot more in some ways to make sure that we don't suffer really big losses in 2022 and 2024 mm. because we have someone that isn't actually able to get people uh, mobilized. You know, I know a lot of Black folks who don't like the really hot, humid heat or don't like the really deep cold. And many of those Black folks still st- stood online in the deep cold and the deep heat to watch Obama. And none of them are probably going to do the same for Joe Biden. And right. so to the extent that we're going to have to build a separate movement, There's just a lot of things that are different. But what I am excited about is that I won't have to tiptoe around someone who is a hero 
to our community and we'll be able to tell it like it is in a deeper way and hold the line around um, sort of what I've been talking about is real solutions versus fake solutions, you know, corporate change versus corporate enablism, effective action versus wasted time, because we're going to get gaslit. They're going to give us bipartisan commissions on things that we, when we know bipartisan commissions are where, where ideas go to die. Uh, George yeah. W. Bush had a bipartisan commission on immigration reform, and we don't have immigration reform. To the extent that we can't allow ourselves to be sort of gaslit or pandered to or told to be patient around things when they know they're actually not moving, those are going to be the things that are important. Um, and those are the ways that we're going to be really focused. Absolutely. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, people don't know you as much on the inside. I'm on the board of Color of Change, so I get a chance unlike many other people to see Rashad in action. I hope everyone really understands how hard it is to grow an organization the way you know, you've grown Color of Change. And at the same time, basically potentially aggravate all of the big money options that are existing. <laughs> I like, you know, it's not like there's some huge pot of, of you know, black donor money that's just, you know, going to ca- carry you to the future and cover all the issues that need to be covered. And I mean, you go into meetings with Facebook, with, you know, Walmart, with whoever it is you need to go into a meeting with. And you're just like, look, you know, um, and you don't do it belligerently. You don't do it with an aim to blow things up. You have a goal, but you're you're relentless. I mean, it's an amazing gift. I really wanted to thank you for that, but also to to have you share a little bit about some of your experiences in any one of those situations that you think are, you know, is a good example for people to see, you know, what's at stake? What does it mean to negotiate the halls of power and challenge them effectively at the same time? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm always really clear about is that in order to negotiate, you actually have to have a power base. And right now, our power base is a a membership of 7.2 million Black folks and allies that have taken action with us in the last eight months alone. It makes us by far the largest sort of online grassroots force out of any racial justice group and just about any of the social justice groups on the left. Uh, we grew this summer from 1.7 million to 7.2. Grew our SMS platform from 150,000 to 6.2. And so when you when you have wow. that, you have to be willing to go into to arguments, into debates, into meetings, with the idea that you may have to leverage that, but you don't leverage it right away. You don't like each thing doesn't require us to push and engage our members. Sometimes if we do the work right we can make the threat and have them do the thing we need them to do. But you always have to be willing if they call your bluff to actually be ready. You know, my dad is 5'3 as well, like me. And so he taught me very early on, if you're going to be out there, you know, (laughs) saying what you want to say, you have to be ready to back it up. And if you're not ready to back it up, then you shouldn't say anything because more people are going to call your bluff until they're, until they're clear that you might actually, you might actually deliver. And so part of, part of that for me has been, of building a force that can deliver, but constantly sort of going, being willing to go to the table and holding that force out. The other thing is that we don't take corporate financial support and we're the only national black civil rights organization that doesn't. And so to the extent that when we're in every single one of those meetings, I'm not worried about if Walmart's gonna give us a check or they're gonna renew a check afterwards. I'm not worried about is Facebook gonna cut us off if I 
leave the meeting and say what I think about Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and all of the ways in which they've been profiting from hate and the radicalization of white nationalism in this country. I don't have to worry about it because their money is not part of like the equation of our bottom line. What is part of it is that we've built really strong relationships because we deliver with progressive foundations. And that's taken time because there's a, because philanthropy is also deeply challenged. It's all about rich people taking their money off of the tax, out of the tax market, and then being able to dole it out in small increments to people who have been marginalized, attacked, and exploited, and then giving it to us in small amounts and hoping that we sort of are happy and go away. But the thing that we've also been able to do, which I'm really proud of, is grow an online small dollar powerful force. For the people who give small dollar contributions to us, averaging probably about um, a million dollars a month, that powers our organization. It allows us the freedom to take on fights. It allows us to speak with an independent voice. It allows us to make mistakes sometimes. It allows us to innovate and try new things that don't actually have to pay off right away because some white funder thinks like it's not a good idea. And an example of that is like, we did a report with USC Norman Lear School on crime TV shows. We spent a year last year looking at all the crime TV shows, the law and orders, the CSIs, work to push. We created all sorts of metrics and tools to look at sort of how they use black characters to actually make the injustice on TV okay, how they insert black judges into all the shows, but the writer's rooms are all white, thereby sending sort of justice through the mouths of a symbolic, oftentimes elderly black character that makes us supposed to think that justice exists. So many things on these shows, which are sort of deeply challenging. We produced the report and we didn't get as much progress back in January and February, but lo and behold, the tragedies, both to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, we are in the writer's room of basically every single show now with our report, with our data, reviewing scripts, pushing them on changes, inserting storylines that will actually show police unions as they are. So many things that are sort of new opportunities. If I only had to wait around for a philanthropy to say that this was an okay idea, I would have been doing the report after George Floyd had been murdered, not before. And as a result, I would still be working on it. And who knows if it would have actually been able to be leveraged to have the impact. That's right. God, that's That's so true. But see, that's that's, that's leadership. That's part of what I meant by vision. Because you had no idea it was going to generate this kind of largest protest demonstration in the history of the nation. But you already knew the issue was there, the real, the suffering was in place and so forth. But you mentioned your beloved father. And I wanna raise this question about me, what goes into the making of a uh, a brilliant, courageous, decent brother named Rashad Robinson? Both at the level of family, intellectual, maybe artistic, Long Island, what what goes into the making of who you are though, brother? Cause you're a special kind of brother, man. I grew up in a household where my parents really cared about the world around them. They, neither one of them went to college, but my father started a small business before I was born that Mm -hmm. him and my mother built up And My father's a contractor. He worked in high-end homes doing ceramic tile, glass block, marble, bathrooms on the South Fork and the North Fork of Long Island. So think the Hamptons and the North Fork. And in the summer times, 
he would make me and my brother come work with him. We have to carry cement buckets. I have like been at fancy galas um, in New York and have run into people whose houses I have um, <laughs> been worked inside of over the summer. Um, it's always a really embarrassing moment where I like say, oh yeah, no. And like, I'm like, oh, I've been to your home. And they're like, look at me like, oh really? What you did were you at? Oh, I had a fundraiser for this. I'm like, no, I worked on the tile in your house. And like, <laughs> how's they, the, like, mar- how's the marble in- doing? <laughs> yeah, they want to stay and really be in conversation with you. Or they want to like make a beeline for the door because they're deeply embarrassed. I can't remember if they treated my father well or poorly. Right, right. Like one of the few self-employed black contractors on Eastern Long Island when I was growing up and um, certainly wow. uh, working on the South Fork. Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in a house that where like black culture and art, particularly my parents are like deep jazz aficionados. They mm. like traveled around to jazz festivals and would take me wow, and my brother, yeah. everything yeah. from like yeah. uh, the Litchfield yeah. Jazz Festival in Connecticut to Newport to like, and so I felt like my brother and I were on the jazz circuit, but got, a, got to experience places where like black people were traveling and going other places, even though like my family was very like working class to middle class while I was growing up, we like, mm-hmm. they kind of, we kind of went places. I, and then, you know, politics was part. I remember my parents explaining to us why we weren't going to Great Adventure back when I was nine years old because they were gonna give Great Adventure theme park because they were gonna give that money to Jesse Jackson's um, 1988 run. Ooh, and I started following politics and started following Jesse Jackson as a result. I am very lucky in that I was shaped by folks that actually believed a lot was possible, even if it wasn't all in front of their face. And I also grew up in a house with an entrepreneur, two entrepreneurs who very much were builders and thought about building. And from the house mm. that we lived in, which my dad built, to so many other homes that he built. And that also has, I think, shaped some of the ways in which I show up and some of the ways in which I uh, believe that things can be built, things can be developed, that we don't have to wait for someone else to open a door, appoint a door to it for us. Those are powerful stories, man. Mm. You know, it's so important to, to hear what goes into the making. Cornell asks this a lot, and I learn something every time. I knew a little bit about your dad's business, but when you really put it in the context of, you know, what do you have belief in, right? What what do you imagine is possible? Uh, not because someone gives you a lofty imagination, but because they materially show you what makes it happen over time. And the whole thing about making sure you weren't selling wolf tickets is how I would translate the other issues. That you, <laughs> now, that's a definitely a 70s Black thing to learn, which is somebody's going to call your bluff and you better figure it out. It is so true. No, And my dad left the house to get to the job at six o'clock in the morning. And he would sometimes come home late, um, but he still like coached Little League. And uh, my brother was much more into Little League than I was, but we both played. And um, I say all that to say that I also just saw that none of it comes easy. The hard work that goes into it, I like saw that very clearly and that there was no boss for him, my dad. There was no like backstop. If he was sick and he didn't get paid. And that that was also part of how I I saw things. So talk a little bit about, if you would, how 
some of the other campaigns that you have you've been instrumental in again i want you know our tightrope community to really understand because people sign up for color change they get newsletters but you know there's this infrastructure of amazing interventions i mean there is the culture work which you've been really digging deeply into and has been very powerful but you've had fantastic campaigns in a number of areas you know the mother's day bail campaigns other organizing mechanisms and what what i love about all that you do and what the whole all color of change does is it connects to where people are but it also pushes them honestly at the same time so it doesn't it doesn't kowtow to where people are, right? But it also doesn't reject and ignore where people are for other agendas. So if you could just give a couple of examples of campaigns, I just think people would be really interested to hear. There's a couple of campaigns that always stick out to me when people ask, and one is our work around progressive prosecutors. You know, we've been in this space for years where we see incidents in our criminal justice system, we see incidents in our policing, and you know, people get mobilized, people are outraged, but then we have no place to push that energy. And several years ago, we decided we were gonna sort of build out a program to actually engage and deal with the role of prosecutors in this country. We built the only searchable database of the 2,400 prosecutors um, called winningjustice.org. Um, we built out some public education material, a kind of 70s styles animation video with Common doing the voice that actually explains the role of prosecutors. But then we started getting involved in elections and engaging and taking out bad prosecutors, while also getting prosecutors to commit to new things, while also at the same time, holding out the vision, the power that prosecutors have, is not enough. And I think this is important about how we think about color of change and work, is that sometimes we have to build power inside the context, but we never think that the context is okay, right? Just because we win an election, don't tell me that it was a win for democracy if people had to wait on long lines, if people had different sets of sort of voting opportunities, if the system was rigged time and time, just because we may win with our candidate in that election doesn't mean democracy wins. And so in this progressive prosecutor work, where we've been able to elect dozens of prosecutors now in big cities like Chicago and Los Angeles, in Houston, Orlando, Philadelphia, and really sort of work to start reshaping the, what prosecutors think is their job and what the public thinks is the role of prosecutors, dealing with all sorts of attacks um, in the process. Um, another campaign is the, we're watching the rise of white nationalist infrastructure, right? And one of the things that we sort of recognized was that we had to go after the money. And so we spent some time researching and looking at how were these organizations being funded. And so we did a couple of things. One, we went after the banks that were hosting donor advised funds that were donating money to them. And we got them to cut off those white nationalist groups from actually moving donor advised funds. Then we went to Visa, Master, American Express, and PayPal. And when we first went to those companies, they said, you have to go to the banks. And then the banks said, you go to the credit card companies. And so we said, okay, we just don't have enough power yet. So we built a platform called No Blood Money. And we started working to build out the platform and then Charlottesville happened. And that weekend the staff went in and we turned on the lights on everything that we had been building. And within a, within a couple of hours that next Monday, we started having lists of white nationalist groups being sent to us by these credit card processing companies saying, hey, we're cutting off these groups as per our previous conversation. Hundreds of white nationalist groups have now been cut off 
from being able to process. So you can't go on Richard Spencer's site, for instance, and enter your PayPal number or buy paraphernalia because we've cut that off. We faced a lot of attacks as a result. This happened Ooh. at the same time that we got corporations to divest from O'Reilly and got him kicked off the air. And so we ended up with a lot of these attacks and most recently getting Google Cloud to cut off the Proud Boys from all of the sort of infrastructure. What I was, I've always been interested in is how do I not like actually have to be in a back and forth fight with these groups? How do I say, okay, who's enabling them? And how do right. I go after the enablers? And how do I force the enablers to pick a side? And if they don't pick our side, how do I make them wish every single day for as long <laughs> as possible that they did pick our side? And how do I do it in such a way where everyone else sees that happening and they pick our side when we, um, because they know it's worth it, it's not worth it to not. And so those are some of the ways in which we really think about our campaign work. It is about this like idea that there's a deep level of presence and visibility and awareness for black people and black issues, right? But we can't mistake presence for power, uh, visibility and awareness for the ability to actually change the rules. And when we do mistake presence for power, as we said earlier, we can think and people can think that a black president means that we're post-racial or that America celebrating and uh, loving on and, uh, and retweeting black celebrities means that America loves black people as much as America loves black culture and America as we all know, can love, monetize, and celebrate Black culture and hate Black people at the same time. And those two things don't actually have to be in conflict. In fact, they can almost thrive on themselves because they can create a hostile climate for even the culture makers who should be benefiting from what they've created and oftentimes don't. That's so true. I've said over and over again when we were down in Charlottesville and walking right next to some of our very sick uh, neo-fascist KKK white brothers that some of them listen to Motown in the park. Yeah. So they're going to mow us down, but want to resonate in the genius and talent of the culture that comes from the people themselves. You see, that's very American. Yeah, that is very American. I mean, at its worst, we got American at its best too, you know. Yeah. But, but the point that you're making is so real, even though it's in an extreme situation. But what do you make of these 72 million fellow citizens? Almost 60% of white brothers, 56% of white sisters, 30% of Asian Jews, 30% of Latinos, 28% of queers, 19% of the black brothers voting for Trump. What, what do you make of that, my brother? So I'm still looking into the exit poll numbers because some of them may not be accurate, but you're right. We, yeah. At the end of the day, we know that 70 million people voted for this man. And um, after these three and a half years? <laughs> after three and a half years. And I mean, in some ways, right, this is also what you get when you don't have an aspirational vision on the other side, right? Yes, I said right after, right after Trump got elected that people could hate Trump and not love our side in return. And that I think is really important as we think about sort of the future uh, and even some of the things that we're hearing from moderates, right? Around what, you know, moderates who are, who are woefully bad at convincing anyone to be Democrats. Moderates don't actually ever build the numbers. They don't actually move people. They've like time and time again fail at that, but then we still listen to them and they oftentimes talk about numbers because it's easier to blame black and brown people. I'm old enough to remember when folks called sort of Obama with all of his moderation, a socialist. They will always find things 
to say um, and always find things to throw at us. And part of the problem is, is that we haven't moved our own message. We haven't dug in and built mm. a base. We haven't created the engagement for people to love our side and fight for our side in return. And I think like that was part of the problem. I mean, Donald Trump likes to talk about himself a lot, but it felt like Joe Biden was talking about Donald Trump as much as, Joe, as Donald Trump was. And I right. think like right. part of this is like, right. we also have to have our own vision. I also think we've done a bad job of telling the story about mm. what's happening in this country. And as it relates to racial justice in particular, right? I believe that racial justice is now a majoritarian issue. You look at the polls, you even look at this electoral win. Racial justice is a majoritarian issue. The task ahead will be making it a governing majority. And that's gonna be the work uh -huh. and the infrastructure we have to build because just because yes. something's a majoritarian issue doesn't mean in an era of corporate power of entrenched white supremacy that we actually have the power to actually govern just because we are the majority and not black people are the majority, but like the people who stand with the idea of racial justice. Right, that's right. Potential. Yeah. But I think we tell the story wrong. Far too often, we will put an active voice on the people and a passive voice on the systems. And we leave people confused about what actually happened. And an example of this is like, black people are less likely to get a loan from the bank instead of banks are less likely to give loans to black people. Black women are less likely to get hired into name X field, instead mm. of X field excludes black women for these jobs. Why this is important is because we yeah. end up in this idea of charitable solutions to structural problems. So what ends up happening is that we get financial literacy programs delivered to us by Wells Fargo, instead of Wells Fargo actually dealing with all the ways in which they've redlined, targeted, attacked us, they can get off the hook and we actually don't hold them accountable because Democrats have been too afraid to create villains out of corporations in hopes that they can still get the sort of one third or one fourth of the mm -hmm. money that they're gonna give to the Republicans. And Absolutely. so we, we stay, you know, when we were battling Facebook, I watched and I started digging into Facebook's contributions on the Hill and saw that Chuck Schumer, even after 16, 2016, in the role that Facebook played, Chuck Schumer was the biggest recipient of Facebook money of anyone in the United States Senate, right? And so, you know, in that example with the, with, you know, black women, we end up getting mentorship because it's easier to try to fix black women instead of fixing, yep. you know, uh, the yeah. systems which are misogynistic and racist that have excluded black women from these jobs. And so, you know, I think that like, even yeah. when white Democrats, black Democrats um, <laughs> have come to black communities, they start off with black communities like we are vulnerable. Black communities are not vulnerable. We've been under attack. We've been targeted. We've been exploited. Vulnerability is a personal trait. And so part of what we've also been trying to do is push folks to tell the story better and not start off with deficit framing. Because when we start off with deficit framing, right, then it looks like people are being given something. Um, not that we are actually sort of dealing with harms and structural challenges, that we are doing favors for people instead of we are actually fixing things that were wronged. And we have to change that framework if we are actually going to build a majority. I think the final thing is that Donald Trump is a unique figure. Mitt Romney didn't have this juice. Uh, right. McCain right. didn't have this juice. Um, he is a unique figure. And I think like that's also important for us to remember in that 
We picked folks who were not the most charismatic forces in the party to go up against one of the most charismatic people in American life. And regardless of what you think and feel about Donald Trump, he has a level of charisma that can hold the stage for hours at a time and the ratings prove it. And we continue to put people up against him that couldn't even stay on the same playing field. And even then, even then, millions more people voted for our side nationally than voted for Donald Trump. Right, 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 right. right. Brother, you, you speaking some very crucial truths. Yep. Before we close, I, I wanted you also, Rashad, to talk about voters on the ground. You know, my feeling from observing what has been going on around the country was that, you know, everyday people put their lives literally in their hands, stood in lines that should not exist in this technological moment and said, whatever happens, count it or don't count it. I'm going to cast it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if I don't cast it, it could definitely not going to be counted. But I stand a chance. Right. When I look place after place, you're seeing this, I'm assuming, 10 times more than I'm seeing it because you're having people on the ground, you're creating these long lines partially or encouraging many people. Can you share what your experience was with this? For me, this was very moving and upsetting, but also very moving at the same time. I'm wondering how oh, you it was, experienced it, was, it. It was moving. I had stories that some nights in the middle of the pandemic, you know, sitting in my apartment and we get some less, some of the stories or I would side on to some of the work our PAC was doing just to check in with some of the volunteer, over 25,000 folks volunteered with the Voting While Black Color of Change PAC program this cycle. Oh, and I had stories that wow. literally brought me to tears, like 80 year olds um, getting trained by high schoolers who were not old enough to vote on the text message platform and like clear that they were gonna learn how to do it and they because they mm. needed to like engage voters. And then when some of them got frustrated, they like then just started making a list of all the folks in their family that they wanted to load those names in the system, which I had to tell them that that's not actually legally. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 and, Don't uh, mess with no 80 year olds. It's always hard to tell an elder like that, you know, you can't do it. I was like, I was like you know, some days I was like, I was like the FEC is going to really mess me up here. But we saw so many stories, you know, we did these Black Joy drive-ins. And so we centered our whole program around Black Joy, which we talk about is not the absence of pain, but the presence of aspiration. And what we, not just what we are fighting against, but what we are fighting for. And we tried to, in the middle of this pandemic, so we did all of these sort of Black Joy Zooms in different cities, where then we would move people to doing voter contact work. We did drive-in, Black Joy movie drive-ins. We're literally like a week before the drive-in, we would be oversold in terms of how many people could go. And we would play like Black Panther wow. and Love and wow. Basketball and other movies that are kind of like, what we were talking about is like Black Joy movies, like movies that like people, a lot of people might know the words to, or like- It's like it's like the movie version of Electric Slide, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and people were in their cars with their phones and in between like, different parts of the movie, we would like intersperse in with the directions for people to do the voter contact on their phones, like load into the system while the movies were going on. And so literally thousands of people 
in Atlanta, in, um, in, in Charlotte, in throughout Florida, in Michigan. And we would rent out these places, these parking lots, um, do these drive-ins. And what I will say is like, people showed up. People showed up in powerful ways. And we just saw something really just beautiful about participation. And what was most beautiful about it, whether it was the folks who engaged with us or they engaged with Latasha Brown and Black Voters Matter or INSEE and the New Georgia Project or so many other, the other groups that sort of really translated a lot of this energy. It wasn't, they weren't coming for the candidate. They were coming for themselves and their families. They were coming to get back some dignity after these last four years. Absolutely. They were Absolutely. coming back to prove that they could send a message. And so what the Democrats also need to recognize is that this win wasn't for them. This win was for us. We didn't do it for them. If they want us coming down the road, they're going to have to do things. Uh, Joe Biden is a restoration candidate. And I think that the problem with restoration is that we don't want to go back. And, um, and there's nothing really to go back to. I tell the people from the antitrust monopoly space when they talk about the good old days, and I'm like, well, those were just white monopolies or all male monopolies or both. There are sometimes folks that think of good old days. And yes, there were some like moments in music and art and culture that I'd like to go back to, but um, there's not much else that I want to go back to. And so I say that that's going to be really important. It's going to be important yeah. in Georgia during this runoff but it's gonna be important moving ahead. And I think new power bases are being built. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which we're very much part of, these movements which have a vision around corporate power, which are operating from an intersectional framework, which are unafraid um, to challenge these sort of notions that just because someone is black that we can't push back on them or that we have to support them. You know, I grew up with Ebony and Jet in my house and I am so proud that I did, but, the sort of idea of simply a black police chief means that police, the policing is gonna be better is not proven out by the numbers, nor is it proven out by the experience. And so I've heard you say this, Dr. West, before about black faces in high places. And I just wanna say like that very much is um, sort of how we think about, um, about this. So even as they call us and ask us about different nominees, we're not interested in diversity for diversity's sake. We're interested in removing the barriers. We're interested in making sure that the participation that people put in actually leads to folks' lives being made better. Brother, you are a bona fide national treasure. That is the truth. It is. I'm I'm, I'm, I mean, I would say international, but I know you focus primarily on the USA. But I mean, you know, Brother Biden and Sister Harris, you know, they, sh they should be calling you, asking for insight, discernment, encouragement, and everything. Right. How can we deliver? How can we deliver they, on what Black exactly. people need and other people affiliated Absolutely. with them? To Senator Harris's credit, she has called a number of times and has been willing to get oh, on the phone, even as recently as, a, as recently as like three or four weeks ago. But yeah, we haven't had much contact with President-elect Biden, if, yeah. if any. Yeah. Um, definitely some on his team. We are talking with the transition, but, but yeah, I mean, they're going to hear from us one way or the other. Oh yeah, they well, don't exactly. have to call you. We know yeah, that. By the time, by the time exactly you call right. them, they're wishing they had called you and it's actually a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever the they is. Yeah. What a beautiful thing, whether they call or not, he gonna be the same person. 
Exactly. Same exactly. Vision, same witness. Same concern with with with, with people catching hell. And that's right. that's 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 the best of our movement going back hundreds of years, brother. And this this focus on building what we know we need, right? And and challenging the cultural space at the same time because a lot of young people in particular, but grownups too, because you know the music and culture that is has issues is is attached to a couple generations. But what has happened is that you know the places where we would have been able to feel the balm of 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 community and possibility and dignity is not something we control with the same level of creative or intellectual or institutional space that we once controlled. And so because of that, the cultural arena begins to reinforce the notion that we are only as much as we've been deprived and refused and destroyed, right? And so the story that you're saying needs to begin with the corruption and not the people who've been injured by the corruption right, is also something that's a cultural narrative problem that's not being addressed in, in popular culture, not just TV, but in popular music. And I think this partly accounts for why so many brothers voted for Trump, because a certain kind of gangster philosophy in hip hop and other musics, not just hip hop, but in the popular cultural arena is, is just, you know, Trump in, in, uh, in African-American parlance. And so really undoing that to say, look, we can gather we can gather and love each other and have a good time and connect with each other in, in ways that are just as popular as other ways and be active. The, the joining of that affirmative space with the critical challenges, it's exhilarating and it shows you how much we have lost in that way, right? How much you are basically rebuilding in the spirit of your dad and his work, you know, starting from the ground and putting brick to brick until we got the house we need. I mean, that is absolutely right. I mean, the, the level of gatekeeping on our culture right now, on the stories that get told, you know, the rooms that I have been in over the last year, and then you get into the room and you find out who's greenlighting everything and who's, who has the authority over the stories, who makes the tweaks um, mm. that changes yep. the context. And because our creatives know who's making the, the tweaks, what they negotiate themselves out of before they even walk in the door. For some of them, not all of them, but will some, what many of them will have to negotiate themselves out of. All of this is, is a challenge, regardless of how anyone else sees us. We want to be able to see ourselves reflected as who we are. And that alone can give us the type of power to fight for the things that we actually deserve, to fight against the forces that are actually standing in our way. I run up against these regressive narratives from black people all the time around folks just need to do this or folks just need to do that or thinking that they can entrepreneur themselves out of structural racism. Um, that um, <laughs> that like, I'm just like, sure, you might actually do a little bit better, but for the, but you know, we have more black millionaires and billionaires than ever before. And that doesn't mean that black people are actually doing better as a whole. And so you actually have to truly pick like, you know, what, what it is that you actually want to achieve and, and what the story you want to tell about your achievement and how, what it meant, not mm -hmm. just for yourself, but for the people around you and that. And what it took. And what it took and who had to be, who had to be thrown, thrown out or thrown away in order for that to be possible. But in, in many ways, it's being true to your, uh, your beloved mother and father, free, mm -hmm dignified, don't ask for anybody's permission as to who they love and how they love. 
Then get deeper than that. No, everything flows from that. Get flows deep. from that, that. That's Coltrane, Love Supreme right there. Absolutely. Mm. Which I'm sure you heard at many a festival, oh. Rashad. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you know, I ended up, like, also just younger, like, seeing Next Generation, like, Thelonious' Son on tour, yes. or P.S., right? And all these folks. So yes. I also, like, um, you know, by the time my parents really got comfortable, like, really, like, taking my brother and I and, like, really, like, enjoying it, we got to see some of the, some of the, the great greats were not on the road the way, um, the way so I got to I have a we have a lot of videos that we would we would watch uh, wow. but yeah I got to wow. I got uh, to uh, really experience it and um, you know in my apartment I have you know uh, some old prints of like uh, Miles and Monk and ooh, others yeah Lord. wow yeah Lord. wow but you know mm, you know mm, that that's mm. a tradition we need to also bring back so that we uh we have it in our in our in our contemporary dna right because so much of that gets marginalized three percent of the profit margins uh in in the american industry is jazz but it's 80 percent of the of the spiritual inspiration of, of music in the 20th century so Ooh, are we you know are we in the business of understanding its economic value is that the only place that it makes sense i mean obviously that shouldn't be the case and uh, so, I mean, we're just so thrilled to have you. You know, Tightrope is your second home. So anytime true. you want to come on the Tightrope, talk about anytime, whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Well, I, I, can't, I can't wait to come back. This was the, the highlight for me today, both talking to both of you, but also uh, just being in your presence. And thank you for your work, for your thought leadership, for the kind of soil that you have tilled for us um, as advocates out in the space and the context that you have helped to build. Um, you know, we are, we are so grateful for um, your leadership and for the fights that you all have taken on and just uh, to continue to learn. And so mm -hmm. I just, I also just want to um, let you all both know how much we, we appreciate um, at Color of Change, um, everything that you all have done and are doing. Well, thank you, Rashad. It's a blessing entirely. You. Definitely. Ooh, that's a lot of inspiration right there. It was. That, that was wonderful. Yeah, mm. I mean, when mm. you see that level of courage and that Good level of God. commitment and integrity, you Absolutely. realize it, it's, it's, it's really by contrast where you look around and you're like, well, I thought this other fool was doing something reasonable. And you're like, oh, I guess not. The whole framing of that was some foolishness, you know, and it just is so obvious. It's, it's, it's you don't a, even have a, to mention just a brilliance and a clarity he has that uh, communicates in such a powerful way. It really is yeah. something. No, he's... Uh, it really amazing. is something. It's amazing what he's built in, in, in less than a decade. Got less than 10 years. Mm, mm, yep, that's, yep. Man, that's that said, beautiful. you know, we have to keep building, you know, and... and no, and but that's keep, true. Yeah, because... I didn't know that his father was a... Uh, a general a contractor, like yeah. I had no idea. God yep, bless him. Yeah. It's so important. I love that you ask people really those questions, not just because it's important to remember who who we come from, but also because you really learn how much black cultural and, and survival traditions are embedded yes. in all of us. Absolutely. And, and we lose Absolutely. sight of that, not because we don't look for it, but because we're severed from it. Right? Our our public celebration requires a severance from black community. Yeah. And so he's just refusing that and you refuse it with those questions, right? You make it 
extremely difficult for people to say that we only know Christian Scott or we only know Rashad Robinson, right? Or we only know people right. who, for what they are famous for, right? Absolutely. Or AOC, right? What you wanted to know was, I don't want to know what you're famous for. I want to know who and from where and why do you come? How did you get here? And then immediately you see these, all these ancestors standing around the person. Absolutely. And you realize, oh, we're embedded in a tradition. And then you think about your own embeddedness. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's a very powerful Absolutely. reframing of, you of, saw of sister sister peppermint went with, went with her grandmama today yep so exactly a pool worker oh, and an activist oh, yep yep linked to the harrisburg riot in 1969 i said oh Oh. I mean, credited with starting it, sounds like. Yeah, exactly. One That's even more guys. than being showing up. That's the truth. Sometimes that tradition is passed on by osmosis or by things you don't even remember hearing, but that, that are part of your family legacy. And because you know it happened, even if you weren't there, you know that means you can do it, right? Exactly um, how. Right. So it's it's a that's one of my favorite things about this space with you, Cornell, and the time and the, the guests we have is is really reconnecting for me and for hopefully others, reconnecting people who we we know something about, but connecting them to this this hidden tradition, this obscured, d- disrespected, frankly, tradition. And they're so open to lay bare for us, you know. Right, right. They, 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 they right. It's not an imposition. They come right on in. That's right. They come yeah. right on in. Let me introduce you to some folk. Yep, yep, yep. Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Cornell and I would just like to take a few seconds to share some of the cool facts and features that we've discovered on Audible. It's a really interesting way of getting information, isn't it, Cornell? It is. You know, my dear sister Tricia, we both are very, very blessed to be able to be in dialogue with each other and connect with communities all around the world. Those communities themselves are wrestling with social distancing and lockdown. Thank God they can come to a place where they can get some rich stories and we hope be empowered. You know, that's really true. Uh, Audible is an interesting platform that really can be considered an extension of a lot of the teaching tools that we have access to as professors. So we can point our students to all the titles, but we can also expand the way we actually educate with the audio experience. So can you think of an audiobook, Cornell, off the top of your head that you would recommend that's on Audible for our listeners to check out? I would say they ought to check out the voice of souls of black folk and check out your classic black noise. Oh, wow. All right. We got two, two blacks in that one. That's a good one. Guess what I'm going to say? Anything by the amazing Tony Morrison. Ooh, isn't mean, that the truth? Isn't I mean, you, five minutes with Tony audibly and you're, you're set for the week. So tightrope family, don't forget to visit audible.com slash the tightrope pod or Text the tightrope pod to 500-500 if you like to get started on Audible today. You'll receive a free download if you use our show code. For now, let's get back on the tightrope. That's going to be the motto for 2021. Don't get things confused. Don't get things confused. You got to stay in the show now.
<laughs> Stay in the show. Now. Okay, wait. Where, where, where is the show now? To break it down. We might have to share this. Where's the show now? Well, you remember the song by Luther Vandross? Mm -hmm. Once you know how, you will never ever forget how to fall in love. Mm. It's it's a show enough thing. So it's a show enough thing about the love. Then James Brown has said, and there it there it is. Donna, 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 donna. Stand in the show enough, keep mm -hmm. me satisfied. Uh huh. So you got both show enoughs, Luther and James, stand mm. in the show enough where the love and the freedom is. Mm. Mm. And the truth, right? Because yeah, that's right. And the yeah. truth. Mm. It's doing the truth, you know, it's mm. not a it's not a proposition, you know. Right, I mean? right. And it's a state of being, right? Because that's I mean we gotta stay in the show now. We gotta got stay to in the show now. Be in yeah. the show now. That's it. That's it. Mm, I like this. And we got actually that should be a standard for our judgment of political figures and university leaders. Are you in the show now or are you, you somewhere else? In the show enough or what? <laughs> That you a lie. I like that. I like that. We got to ask them. All right. Well, I'm glad to know. I hadn't. I, I that Luther song. I love Luther, but it's not ringing a bell. So I'm gonna have to go get out my Luther. Yeah, once you know how, you will never ever forget. Oh, right, right. To love. Whoa. Yeah. You gotta you know I can't remember what the bridge and the hook is though. Mm -hmm. But it's oh, it's, it's beautiful though. Yeah, it's okay. Loose. I'm yeah, it's yeah, loose. yeah. No, that's a good one. Once you know how, well, that's a whole nother story. No. <laughs> By the time you know how, you, you know, you'd go, nobody wants to hear from you. <laughs> you didn't know how back in the day. <laughs> oh, sister Trisha, that's funny. <laughs> you might be you know, broke as the Ten Commandments financially, but you are the most free and powerful person in the world because mm, you stand mm. in the show now. Yeah, and right. Woo. There's a lot of freedom in that moment. You can break left, you can break right, you can go wherever you need to go. I preached a sermon one time when I was 29, way off in northern Georgia called The Funk at the Cross and Stand in the Show Enough. What? Holy Ghost hit so hard, they had to call the police for security almost. And you know me, I'm not a preacher. I just say what I got to say. What? <laughs> so wait, give me the title again of the sermon one more time. It was called The Funk, the funk. at the Bottom of the Cross and the How You Stay in the Show Enough. The Funk at the Bottom of the Cross and How You Stay the We talk about the blood. We talk about Jesus' yes, blood yes. at the bottom of that mm -hmm. cross, all that funk coming out of his body. Mm, and mm. that's the very place where you get changed and transformed and undergo your metamorphosis and such a deep love. And with that love, you stay in the show enough and follow mm. Jesus into the temple and run out the money changes because you got a sacred fire inside of you that mm. the world didn't give you and the world didn't take away. Mm. Mm. So you, is the show enough, is, is staying in the show enough something we have control over or are people given the capacity? To stay in the I show think now. I think we're given the capacity, but we're tied to something bigger than us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can role model the show now. Oh yeah, we can exemplify mm -hmm. it, but it's okay. always bigger than it's bigger than. But yeah, you think right, all right. these great artists, you know, they're the first ones to tell you when they create yeah. you, 
they tied to some bigger than them. Yeah, they don't. There's not all. It's can't be. It can't be articulated. Frankly, it really is no exactly. word. Exactly, it can't be put in the language and so forth. It's some spirit, some force is, is intervening inside of them, even though they're well prepared, cultivated right. capacity to receive right. it. You know what I mean? That's true. It's like love itself. It's like love itself. It just takes over you. You know. Yeah, that's true. You think you're running something, and then you realize you ain't running nothing at all. Yeah, you <laughs> bigger than you. You're, you're said, in the oh, wind. Lord, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been known to act a fool at that moment. You, um, you ain't lying. It's time so, to just but wait, Cornell. I want to know: is that sermon available? Is no, it, no, no, no. That was about nineteen eighty-two. Mm. I preached that 1982. Wow. Yeah, way that's, off in the boonies. Wow, wow. Way I'd love, off well, in the boonies. The fact that you can remember that is remarkable in and well, of we itself. Had it, no, we had a time now. I Ooh, bet you did. Service. We had a service now. Mm. Mm. Well, you Good change people God, all the time, everywhere you go. Well, thank you, everyone. We've had a wonderful time. We appreciate you joining us on the tightrope. Feel free to share everything via social media networks. And we look forward to seeing you the next time on the tightrope. Take good care, my dear sister, Tricia.